Hey, we are uh, going to be continuing this morning by continuing a series uh, that we've been in titled Sent. And we are in part nine of this series, and actually we're going to be wrapping up our series next week, and I'm excited for uh, kind of what's to come. You're going to get a little bit of a sneak peek of what's to come in the next few weeks um, in terms of our sermon series. But as we're wrapping up this series, um, I'm going to have us turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 15 this morning. And we've been in a series titled Sent, and the subtitle of this series is Finding Purpose in Unexpected Places. And here's kind of like the big picture idea of this series, is, is this idea that where there's people, God sees that there's purpose. Where there's people, where there's relationships, there is purpose in our lives. You and I were all sent to people, whether we like it or not. Like, we can't live our lives in complete isolation. So if we are sent to people, if other human beings are part of this equation, if living our lives in complete isolation really isn't an option, even as hard as you try, right? You're going to have relationship and community with somebody. How do we posture ourselves as sent people? And where we're at in the scriptures this morning, I had you guys turn to Acts chapter 15. Uh, the title of this morning is, is this, Inclusive Growth. Because the section of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning really hand, hand, kind of like confronts two big ideas for us this morning and the implications of our spirituality. Two ideas of the idea of inclusion and the idea of spiritual growth, right? Last week, uh, if you were here, you were blessed because Pastor Sarah brought it. Come on, somebody. Anybody here last week for Pastor Sarah? Yeah, Pastor Sarah, uh, she brought an amazing message that really um, kind of was, she confronted this section of scripture that was coming off the, the heels of disagreement in the early church, right? The early church, early followers of Jesus, they saw this, this, this guy who claimed to be God rise from the dead. They saw him in resurrected form, and they decided, hey, if I'm going to follow something in my life, I'm going to choose to follow this guy, right? So they, they started following Jesus, and early on there were some disagreements in the church because the church began to grow beyond religious comfort zones that people were used to, right? They gathered everybody together in like the Mecca that was Jerusalem for this big corporate board meeting, right? Sounds like super boring, right? But it wasn't because it was like super dramatic. Come on. You know what I mean? Like a good dramatic TV show, Bachelor in Paradise. Anybody? Come on. Okay, forget that I said that. Delete that from your brain. You know what I'm saying? Um, just revoked my man card this morning. There we go. Uh-huh. Uh, so the concern, what was the concern in this massive meeting the church was having during this time? It was the idea that do non-Jewish, non-Israelites need to become a Jew first to be considered a Christian? Do they need to assimilate into Jewish tradition in order to join the church. And what's interesting about this concern at the time, this, this is a concern of you and I today when it comes to religious environments and churches as well, right? In order to come to church, do I have to pray like you? Pray like that guy. Pray like the guy who has a lot of different phrases and repetitive things as he prays. Is, am I supposed to pray like that guy? Do I have to have a specific dress code? If you visit our church for the first time this morning, that would, the answer to that would be a resounding no based on the way I'm dressed. Um, give all my money away to the church. Never use a curse word ever again. It's assimilation. It's a question many times we ask ourselves. What's the culture of the church? What's the culture here? Because when we think about church, for some of us, we get, we get fearful. We got bad memories. Maybe we don't have any memories. Maybe we're kind of starting from just a fresh, 
foundation. So in the scripture we're about to look at, we're going to be picking up from the church's conclusion up to this point from last week. And here was the answer to this concern. Do non-Jewish males have to conform to Jewish culture, Jewish tradition to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus, to become a part of this thing called the church? And the conclusion that at this board meeting that we looked at last week was a resounding no. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus they proclaimed that we are saved. See, the, the church was having a hard time reconciling the culture when it came to people they considered heathens beginning to hear, participate, and understand and follow Jesus, become a part of this family. See, this is so true for us today in the culture of church and what we think of many times when we think of the word church. So we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 15. We're going to read several verses here, 12 through 21, and you can follow along on the screen because we got it up there for you. This is what it says in Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 12. It says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Let's pray before we continue this morning. Lord, we're just so thankful uh, for your grace and your love. We're so thankful that the pinnacle of you and your heart for us was on a cross, sacrificing, showing what love looked like, showing how love was defined. We define love so many different ways, but Lord, you defined it as the pinnacle definition of love by giving yourself sacrificially for us. So Lord, that, 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 that has massive implications in what it means to say we're followers of you today. Or taking next steps of under investigating who is this Jesus. So Lord, I pray this morning you would be so real to us. Because, Lord, that's what you, you want. You desire relationship. Lord, you don't desire for us to have religious paradigms that we play within, but you desire to have authentic and genuine relationship with us as human beings. And we're thankful that because of your death, you made it capable for us to have that relationship. So, Lord, would we take advantage of that this morning? God, would we leave this place being more confident and taking steps forward in our faith and what it looks like to be in relationship with you. So would you bless this time we have together? In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Okay, so we're going to break this down a little bit this morning because this section of scripture, there's so much here. And hopefully we're going to walk away with some really practical takeaways this morning. So we're going to go back up to the top and look at a couple verses to begin with in Acts chapter 15, starting with verses 12 through 13. It's up on the screen there. It says this. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So we have a couple characters here, right? 
Barnabas and Paul, they've just been, man, they've been traveling everywhere. Some scholars are like, anywhere like from like the two to three to four year range, these guys have been traveling and telling people about like, Jesus is resurrected. There's implications. He's inviting us into a, a new lifestyle. He's inviting us into a spiritual form of government that's going to be the pinnacle of how we live our lives, right? So they've been traveling around, and they're telling all these Jewish people about this group of people that are now being impacted by God. They're being changed by God. They're genuinely being transformed by God. These were people that were on the outside, and now they're celebrating coming back with the news is God's taking a posture where he's obviously inviting these people on the inside. And then we get to verse 13, it says, when they finished, James spoke up, brothers, he said, listen to me. It's like, who's this dude James? Because he's like, taking a commanding posture and saying, hey, in the midst of all this church drama, listen to me. Who is James? We kind of, we got to set the stage to understand who this character James is. And, and here's, here's what I know about the biblical narrative is many times people have the same name multiple times. In fact, in the New Testament, right, the, 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 the last one-third of the scripture, Stories about Jesus, the early church, and the implications for our life. There were three main Jameses. So which one is it? There was James, the brother of the apostle John. Well, if, you, if you've been tracking in the book of Acts, that guy was murdered a couple chapters ago. First martyr. First guy who died because of his faith in Jesus. Then we have another James who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples who's kind of like under the radar, only gets mentioned a few times, and is kind of one of those behind-the-scenes guys who obviously contributed, but wasn't like this up front, like in front of everyone, like look at me type of guy. He's one of the ones that's kind of forgotten in the midst of the biblical narrative. And then we have this third James who's being referred to in this scripture, which is James, the brother of Jesus. He was a Jerusalem guy. He wasn't convinced by Jesus. I mean... His brother. Brother was claiming to be Lord. But over a process, after seeing Jesus in his resurrected state, he's like, my brother is obviously worthy to be followed based on the claim that he's made, that he is Lord. But James, as this Jewish man who grew up in Jewish culture, he was a guy that lived, breathed, and was passionate about the city of Jerusalem. This center place, this massive city that, that had... Massive implications on Jewish culture, their Jewish temple where they worshipped. This was the centerpiece during this time when it came to Israel. And this was the guy who, while Peter, while Paul, while some of these early church guys are running around telling people passionately about Jesus, James was the guy who was like sticking around in Jerusalem and keeping the church together. And what we know from history is James throughout his life was the guy who was passionate about convincing people that were Jewish and pointing them to Jesus. People that were so pious in their dedication to what it meant to follow God, being an Israelite. He was passionate about helping people understand how the Messiah, Jesus, was the one that was prophetically spoken about in their scriptures that pointed to and pointing people and getting them on board with what God was currently doing in this day and age, which was through God's one and only son, Jesus. So if anybody was going to side with Jews and have a bias to Jewish culture, it was this guy. This was your guy. This guy was the guy hanging out. This guy loved 
being his heritage. This guy loved his religious heritage. This guy loved the history that built the stage for what was happening at this point in, in human history. If anyone was going to be a fair representative of the early church at this moment, it was this guy. So people listened when he spoke up. So we keep going in, in, in verse 14. He says this, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose people for his name from the Gentiles, right? Like Paul and Barnabas were earlier describing like the Gentiles, like God's inviting them in. And he's making reference to Simon, also known as Peter, one of these early church leaders, who's been passionately telling all these praise reports, right? All the good things that God is doing with all of these outsiders. And then he goes on and he says this, he says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And he starts quoting from their scripture, their history. He says, after this, I will rebuild, or will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. So James, as the perfect person in a position, he does a little Jewish theological magic for the, for the audience, right? And he quotes from one of the, the prophets, Amos. He's quoting from Amos, one of these prophets that prophetically spoke on behalf of God during this time to the Jewish people, pointing, correcting, rebuking at times the prophets would do. And he's quoting from one of their scriptures, getting on their level, and quoting from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, to show God's goal all along is one big, messy family. He mentions rebuilding David's fallen tent. See, God's goal is David's tent rebuild. This new covenant fulfillment, the new thing that God was doing through humanity. Instituted not by David as this earthly king, like David and Goliath, a common story many of us know. But the rebuilding of this tent of David wasn't referring to like David's going to resurrect from the grave and come back and lead us. But Jesus proved and showed that he's a heavenly king. There's a spiritual rule and reign that's being rebuilt that goes beyond the physical in which we see that has massive implications about what God is doing today. And it's time to get on board with this new thing of what God is doing and the byproduct and the benefits because of what he's done for us. Because of Jesus, God's grace and people's faith becomes the only badge of membership for somebody on the outside to get in. And then he continues, and he says this, he says, it is my judgment, verse 19, therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Judgment. I don't know about you, but like I see the word judgment in the Bible, and like my ears perk up, because judgment is such a loaded word in the church. What does this word mean? judgment, right? Well, here's what we know. In the Greek, the Greek word that's used for judgment here is the word krino. The same Greek word that is used in all of these other places that when we think of the word judgment, it helps us build a context for what krino means. Let's look at a couple of those scriptures. For instance, when Jesus says, do not 
judge, do not crino, or you too will be crinoed. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Jesus, cause and effect. Don't be judgmental, or guess what? You're going to get the same thing that you've given back to you, and don't be surprised, everybody. Don't be surprised if you're a judgmental person, you're dishing out crino, crino's coming back. But in the same way, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians when Paul is writing a letter to one of the early churches. And he says this, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But then he says this, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Wait a second, Jesus, I thought you said not to judge. But we are supposed to judge on the inside. And, and I'll be honest, I've seen people use crino on the inside of the church to do some pretty horrific things to people in the name of I'm supposed to judge you. So James is using a word that we really need to define because it seems like there might be a little bit of a contradiction. But not a contradiction because it matters how the word is being used in the context. How is this biblical word crino being used in a context for us to better understand what is our role as human beings to be people of judgment. What do we judge? What's our role in judge? For some people, they like to use the word judge and create their own God complex and tell everybody else what to do. But is that really the hardline role the church is supposed to take in the culture and in the day and age we live in? He's using this word. See, when we think about the word judgment, just in a human, English, Western connotation, the word judgment on its own kind of, you know, makes you cringe a little bit. But think about it. When we talk about a person with good judgment, that's something that we're like, oh, that's admirable. A person that uses and exercises good judgment for their life. That's something actually we aspire to do, to be. We want to have good judgment in the way that we live and execute our lives, right? But being a judgmental person, typically not categorized as something good. Typically we know, sense, can feel, experience the receiving end of a judgmental person. And once again, this word judgmental has many times been tabbed when it comes to followers of Jesus or the church, right? The church is many times judgmental. So we got to understand this, this Greek word krino and understand the context and how it's being used. And specifically for us, I think it's very important for us to see how it's being used at this point in time when the church is having a lot of drama and disagreement over outsiders coming in. How are we judging? How are we executing judgment? What does this look like? How do we extend and execute judgment within this decision that's being made during this time for the early church? So how is biblical judgment used? This is, this has massive implications. And the first thing in light of James and how he's using judgment, he's saying this, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So how, on the next slide here, how is biblical judgment used? Number one, as James is implying and using it, it's used in this way, to maintain uncomplicated grace. 
teach. The church, there's a, there's a tendency to make things really, really complicated. Overcomplicated. And what James is getting across here in helping unpack a decision that's needing to be made, he says, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. These Gentiles, these other people, they're not second-class citizens. They're not a separate category when it comes to salvation itself, what Jesus has done in their decision to receive what Jesus has done and what it implies for their lives. You want to exclude other cultural backgrounds from the inclusion of what Jesus has done? Tough. You don't get to. That's not Christianity. They make a hardline decision. Let's not complicate grace. Jesus is taking a posture of inclusion based on what he's done for the world that we live in. And we are not called. We have to use our judgment to make sure that continues to be as uncomplicated as possible. Sometimes people say, well, grace! You talk a lot about grace. That's a watered-down gospel. Apparently not in the way that the early church was expressing, living out the implications of what Jesus had done a few years later and how the church played out. Apparently, it wasn't watered down. Apparently, you got to take a black highlighter to your Bible to erase the uncomplicated grace and the decisions people were making fighting for the inclusion of outsiders that religious people were trying to push out. Does not sound watered down, but sounds like the biblical gospel that the church and the early church was relentlessly fighting for. We need to make sure this is uncomplicated. Because when we use our judgment to cause complication with God's grace... It's like we're slapping Jesus as he's on the cross. That grace apparently doesn't have uncomplicated implications of what Jesus has done on behalf of humanity. We can't take our black marker to early church history and erase the fight and the judgment, the good judgment that was being executed to make sure God's grace was uncomplicated for the Gentiles who are finding their way to God's heart and his heart for them. We got to be so careful to not complicate grace. But then he, James continues. There's a tension here. Let's keep going in verses 20 through 21. He says this. We're not going to complicate it, but here, here's what we are going to do. He says, instead, we should write to them, telling them, these outsiders coming in, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So... James is ending this section in his speech by making reference to the law of Moses being his motivation of what he believes the Gentiles should do. Now, we shouldn't be making a posture and making it hard for them to get on the inside, but we also have to build a contextual bridge. we got to build a bridge that's going to help reconcile two groups of people with two histories, two lifestyles, and figure out what that means to be one family. See, he's making reference to what's called the law of Moses, also known as the terms in the scripture of the Mosaic covenant, this covenant that God makes with Moses. Think the Ten Commandments, right? Think the 600 
three other laws added to the Ten Commandments. This is known as the Law of Moses, also known as the Mosaic Covenant, also known as the Old Covenant, in which the first two-thirds of the Bible was named after. See, it was this covenant that God's people got into when it came to their relationship and how and in which they related with God. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, we know there's a change happening. When the author of Hebrews, he says, by calling this covenant new, referring to the covenant in which Jesus set up by his death, burial, and resurrection, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So when there's references made to this old covenant, it's referencing the Mosaic covenant. It's referencing the law of Moses. It's referencing all of these 613 laws that these people use in relationship with God that were terms of the current covenant. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus set up something new. This one's obsolete. But, James is saying, we still got to build a bridge. We still got to relate. We still have to use good judgment. So how is biblical judgment being used? Up on the screen here. The second main way that James is executing and using biblical judgment is to make sure we are honoring God and finding the most efficient bridge to witness his grace to others. See, James's good judgment to be helpful, he basically said, okay, in light of the history, the context, the assumptions that all of these Jewish people were making, here, here's some good judgment that's going to be helpful for all of you outsiders coming in. We're, we need to take a posture of saying, you're in. The terms, not what you do, simply God's grace. But he, here's a bridge that we really encourage you to participate in. Keep away from pagan temples and everything that goes on in them, including sexual immorality. He's encouraging the outsiders who are coming in. He's saying, begin your inclusion. Begin your journey of being welcomed in on the inside by first denying these sinful things so that your life will witness and build an initial foundation that communicates to the Jews, which are way culturally different than you, but it communicates to the Jews that you still matter to this family too. Your history matters. We're coming in, but we're going to set the stage and make some adjustments so that you feel by our posture that you're loved by us as well. We're going to honor God and we're going to make sure that you feel honored and loved in the same. Yes, these are moral obligations, but also, do the Jews regard all those outsiders who came in? Do the, are the Jews regarding them as trustworthy? Regarding them as righteous? How are these outsiders that are coming in how are they living, as the Bible says, living above reproach? Not creating unnecessary drama as two cultures are being shoved together. So this morning, I, I want to give us a couple takeaways 
when it comes to this idea of inclusive growth that I think we can pull from this section of Scripture and the implications it has for us as people of faith today. And this is the first one. It will be up on the screen. Application number one, this is for the church. Maybe you consider yourself a church person, maybe you don't. But for the church, the implication here, past church, current church, here's the implication that that we learn from some principles in this, this section of Scripture. Don't let your personal posture of inclusion keep others from being included. Don't let your personal posture of the grace you've received allow others to not experience grace for themselves. See, this is good judgment. Safety, culture, standards, and what it means to live as one big happy family. It's like for us as a church. We got to execute, we got to institutionally use good judgment. Maybe you're a person, you're like, I love kids. I love kids. I'm passionate about kids. But good judgment would say as a church, just because you love kids doesn't necessarily mean you get to serve with them. We got to make sure we're running background checks. We got to make sure we're using good judgment when it comes to safety with the kids. We got to make sure that we are being And creating an environment that is a good witness to parents that are coming in as outsiders, visiting our church maybe for the first time, right? And make sure we are posturing ourselves with good judgment so they feel welcomed and they feel like there is an environment that is created for them to create the grace of God. You could be a person, I just love kids, so let me in. No, we got to execute good judgment to make sure parents feel safe and we are witnessing safety and using good judgment to illustrate the grace of God through good judgment. Just because God has forgiven your mistakes, you're you're in the grace of God. Just because he's forgiven your mistakes doesn't mean you get to stay in a comforting relationship with those mistakes, right? Good judgment says, God, I'm inviting God into the spaces that allows my life to be transformed. We want to create a good judgment for a culture at our church for transformative grace that will help witness to those that are stuck in habitual sins. The moment you make a bed with those same sins, once you say yes to be a follower of Jesus, come on. You're creating a new bed for the people that are trying to see what it means to come to know Jesus and fight through the vices in their own life. See, when you don't allow the Lord to transform you, you become a really crummy witness to people that are experiencing the same vices that you were. See, God demands change in our life. It's good judgment to say, hey, we believe God's going to authentically show up in your life and push you in a trajectory towards him and his goodness, not require you to be perfect, welcome you with open arms, But if you're committing and counting the cost of what it means to be a follower of him, there's going to be some adjustments made. And if you don't make those adjustments, you're not creating a great opportunity to be a powerful witness about how God is allowing you to overcome obstacles that used to trip you up. See, God wants you to change so that you help bring the change and the grace of God to others because he cares about the people that are on the outside. That's good judgments. 
Just because you have a powerful testimony doesn't mean you get to get up here and preach tomorrow. See, it's good judgment. God cares about not just the things we say, but what does your life look like? Talk is cheap. And I love how James, the author of the book of James in the Bible, partners together this idea that creates an interesting tension for followers of Jesus. Faith without works is dead. We don't get in because of our works, but guess what happens in a fruitful, healthy relationship with Jesus? Your faith goes beyond words. It starts impacting people, starts making a difference in people's lives because you, by good judgment, have called to become a witness that impacts other people. Not just religious jargon, not just talk, but God is saying, what's the quickest bridge for you to be a vehicle of grace, to be a witness to other people? Because it's a big deal to God. Those that are on the outside and how we execute good judgment to make sure our lives are posturing ourselves and saying, I'm taking this Jesus thing so serious because God cares about other people that are struggling. God cares about his family that are disconnected from his love and his grace. And he's invited us to be people that are change makers, to be the ones to pull and invite those very people into his family. I get it. Because of Jesus, you're free. But where's your good judgment when it comes to God's heart for the other people? You are free. But in your freedom, God cares about the freedom of other people. And he wants to bring those two ideas together. Let's back up a little bit. Actually, here we are, yes. So a next step for us, grow in the kingdom culture. Yeah, you can go back to that, that slide, sorry. I was getting ahead of myself. What does this look like? You may be a person that you're a church person and you don't like the idea of other people coming all up in your church and religious space. Here's my encouragement. Here's the next step for us. Grow in kingdom culture. Because God's heart is for everyone. God's heart is for the outsider. If someone's cultural background, ethnicity makes you feel uncomfortable, grow in kingdom culture. Because kingdom culture is a government that's beyond two political parties. It's a government that's, that's higher than any political system. And it's the one Christians have been called to follow. So if you have political differences and you want to die on that difference, it's time to lay that down and grow in a kingdom culture, a banner that goes higher than any American political banner, you see, because King Jesus carries a new government on his shoulders, one that says division's not cool. If you want to buy into the narrative of political division, great, but do not consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus who actually follows a higher government, one that, is being, that brings the unity of the spirit together. If you're a person that is not inclusive to other people or people that make you feel uncomfortable, it's time to understand what the kingdom demands out of your life. And it demands for you to be a person that invites anyone and everyone in. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it's time to get in a relationship with a God who's going to give you strength in the middle of things that make you feel absolutely uncomfortable. His government is higher. That is the cost of following Jesus. You do not get permission to be exclusive to anyone else. You don't. 
And when you exercise that right to be exclusive, to divide, and to buy into that narrative, you are doing zero service for the purposes of the kingdom of God and God's heart for the rest of the world. He has called his church to be unifiers. The fullness of him to fill everything in every way. A growth step is growing in the culture of Jesus' kingdom, his government, which is higher than any earthly human form of government. That is a pride that a follower of Jesus waves and creates as the highest pinnacle of their life and what it means and the cost of following Jesus. Application number two. You may be a church person, pastor, president. Here's the next application. To Jews during this time, or any culturally judgmental person. Meaning this. I'm uncomfortable because my culture isn't being lifted and prioritized, and it's making me feel uncomfortable. This is the application. You don't have the right to claim your own or others' exclusion if you have problems with the posture of universal inclusion. You don't get to judge or deem a person being on the outside if you don't believe in the idea that, once again, God's grace is universal for everybody. You don't get to say, well, you know, that's not enough. There's just not enough in this church for me. Or as the Jews were saying, well, there's just not enough Jewishness for the, the early church for me. We got to make sure that these Gentiles do what they got to look Jewish. They got to honor the history on the level that we want them to. There's just not enough for me. And Jesus is saying, here's how this whole thing is about you. I died for you. I gave you a helper. And someone probably told you about this awesome news to begin with. So here's your job now. Go share the news and stop acting like my sacrifice wasn't enough for you to have new relationship with me and other people. Let's not devalue what Jesus did on the cross and complain about the little nuances of our preferences because once again, we are part of a new culture. We are part of a culture that says Jesus and what he's done is enough. So my preferences, they don't get to rule and reign. My cultural preferences, my family background, when Jesus says, leave your father and mother behind. See, if there's things that are culturally in conjunction or in tension with the way of Jesus, Jesus is saying, sorry, my way, my culture, my love for other people wins. If you got a problem with other people and it's causing you to be a stumbling block for my universal inclusion and grace based on what I've done on the cross, my way actually gets to win in your life. It gets to be the dictator. So a growth step for those of us, maybe that this is our struggle. It's time to grow in grace. It's time to grow in having patience for those that make you feel uncomfortable. It's time to grow and ask God to actually come into your life and relationship and give you strength in those very areas in which you are struggling for. See, a relationship with Jesus demands a relationship and a strength that in our humanity, in our division, into playing games and pointing fingers and arguing and being the all-caps guy on Facebook, you see, that actually gets confronted by the way of Jesus and the posture that we live. And he demands for us to be people that grow in grace for everyone. 
That is good judgment. See, if I've offended you personally because of inclusion, tough. That's my job. That's what I would call using Jesus' authority to exercise good judgment. To make sure we are running desperately towards other people. The same way when the Spirit of God fell on the early church, they started running towards people full speed. See, the minute we begin to run away from people, divide, create chaos, it is a losing battle that is far from God's heart. And there's a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit that is leading us, but a spirit of division. A spirit of principalities and demonic power that is creating division where God's heart is saying, how do we unify together? So if I've offended you because of inclusion, tough. That's, that's, that's kind of my job. But I will say this. If I've offended you because I'm learning how to live in a context I'm not used to, I genuinely apologize. I'm trying to figure out how to love you best. In light of my personal preferences and experiences, I'll be the first to admit, I've needlessly slapped people in the face just by being who I am, not knowing what I don't know. Not knowing as a lifelong West Coast guy, white guy, by the way, moving to the state of Oklahoma, I genuinely apologize because I know my blind spots. I know that I only know what I know, and I know it's been a learning process. I know I've offended people simply due to the ignorance of not knowing the things that I don't know as I grow, as I learn, as I process and journey with what it means to follow Jesus and the implications of what that means for my life in this season. But I'll say this, if the Holy Spirit's slapping you in the face because you're not being inclusive, it's time to get on board with the mission of Jesus. It's just time to get on board. Because that's what he's all about. And good judgment throughout the biblical narrative has proved to see his heart through to make sure we are caring for people, not isolating people from the relentless depths of God's heart and his love for us. One big family is messy and unexpected. And I want to leave us with this this morning. Let's commit to being one big, messy family. Because that's hard. That's not easy. But I'll say this. If we're growing in grace, if we're making sure that our heart represents God's, God's heart, rather than creating division, we're going to find ways to find our similarities, to honor our similarities, and figure out what it looks like to be a group of people from so many different backgrounds, so many different lifestyles, so many different places in the world, culminating to this and the potential of the family that God's inviting others into. Let's commit to being people who say, I'm going to commit to being one big family member in the midst of this messy family. Amen. Can we pray this morning?